My name is Anna Louis-Louis Kwana Kaka, and uh, we live in Kona. Through the years, Hula has been just part of a, a, a joyful growing up, uh, not as a discipline per se, but more of a joy. And uh, something that much of the community members, the other girls, that's what you did, you know, from the time I was three or four years old. And I still continue as much as possible to dance through many different teachers through the years. During our college years, we did a lot of oral history documentation. So we had a wonderful opportunity during our college years to learn the language and um, endeavor in that and to do a lot of oral history documentation. And part of that was with dance, with Huda, along with the language. And uh, as a profession, though, I'm a dental hygienist. <laughs> but I do a lot of, I wouldn't say work, it's just, it's a joyful part of activities and endeavors. My husband, who very entrenched in cultural activities. And so I sit by his side when I can, which is a good part of the time, um, both at home and in his workplace um, to continue with some of the disciplines of the culture, dance and different artistry, lahala weaving, feather lay, feather work. So that's uh, kind of in a nutshell, some of the joys and passions that I have along with the language and culture and their family. It kind of takes me back to more the understanding of um, the origins of Fula. And as I mentioned, uh, being here on Molokai, it's, very, it's been very interesting that um, in our understanding, one of our teachers, um, John Kaimu, Kaimikawa, who is, is a repository of ancient knowledge of our language and our culture. In, in many disciplines, hula was one of them, but it also involved, as I said, um, different other healing aspects, spiritual aspects. So there are protocols of, of ceremony that may be religious in ceremony, um, but also honoring of different deities, honoring of ohana. Family is very important. And so the idea of perpetuating one's family or species, um, they they had very, they would go to the extent of having names for a specific, a specific reproductive anatomical part of a body of the royalty. It would carry a name and they would compose um, chants and songs utilizing the name. And you would know that that was in honor of that specific person of, of royal lineage. And they would be speaking of something that was very natural procreation. And so they had those types of, of um, chants and songs and hula that accompanied it. Very lively in its um, form. But, you know, as I go back um, and there are two understandings that I have, you know, with the origins of hula. And, and one of them is that the hula was a, a duality. It started in the, the martial arts form of lua. And lua, as you also interpret it, is another meaning. It means two. The duality is that it was the martial arts form 
and those steps and those movements were utilized by the dancers in their dance. And so the, the origins in one understanding is that those, those movements, those certain steps were martial arts steps that you would use in battle to protect yourself, to fend off adversaries, but also to maim and control others to the point of paralysis. You had to have the understanding of the duality of you can take life in that discipline, but you also have to know and understand how to restore life. And that was part of the, um, the schooling. And it was not until you reached that level of understanding of that discipline where you would be proficient in, in that discipline of, of, of taking life as a martial arts form, but you had to know how to also to restore life, to heal and restore life immediately in that whole process. In our understanding through our Kumujanka Imikawa, the origins of Hula um, originated here on Moloka'i, in the center of this island, in the, in the highest point of Mauna Loa, in an area, the land district or Ahupua of Ka'ana. Within that place of Ka'ana is a, a place where they've constructed a Hula mound to honor the, the place of origin of Hula as it started with the La'i family here on Moloka'i. Kapa'ula Kina'u was the, the family member who, who danced, but it was within that family that that discipline of Hula began, the generations that came from that La'i La'i family. They would hold that discipline of Hula within their family and they taught their family members. But as more and more people came and desired to learn that, that art form, in the Hanai or the adoptive system of incorporating people into your family, you might not necessarily be connected by blood, but you could be connected by, by being adopted into the family. And so people could learn the hula by being adopted into that family, the Lailai family. Kapu'ula Kina'u was the one that was the teacher, Kumu or Olohe, in that discipline here on Moloka'i. And because so many people wanted to learn the hula, she taught her siblings, especially Kevilani, her younger sibling. Kevilani, being much younger, took to the dance and became extremely proficient in it, but also desired not just to teach within her family here on Moloka'i, but to leave where this where Pu'unana is located. It's actually the, the, um, the geographic center not just of Moloka'i, but of the, the eight major habitated islands of Hawaii. It is the geographic center. It is the navel. It is the pico. And there's a saying here on Moloka'i, Moloka'i kahula pico. Moloka'i, the birthplace, navel, the center of hula. And Kevelani, who desired to, as she looked out from Pu'unana and looked north, Northeast, she saw the island of Ni'ihau in the mist. It's the northernmost habitated island um, in these eight islands. And she desired to visit there, to travel and visit there. And she requested to be allowed to do that, to leave the island, but also to probably take the dance with her, the hula, the understanding of hula. And after many requests, she was finally granted 
that. And she was in her graduation, her uniki, from that school of, of discipline of hula. She uh, unikied with another name, her graduation name composed of, of three names, one of them being Laka. And so from the island of Moloka'i, she traveled. She left and traveled to Ni'ihau, spent time there, probably taught the hula there, and then to Kauai, to Oahu, to Maui, Hana'i, and last to the shores of Puna on the island of Hawaii, where she shared the hula with Opoi and her good friend Hi'iaka, the sister of Pele. And from that time, you know, we, we hear in, in, in Hawaii her name, Laka, as being the goddess or patroness of hula. But she um, was a, a, a physical being, a person of the family, the Laila'i family of Moloka'i. And so in our understanding, the origins of hula are from the, uh, she is honored. She is the one in our understanding today that's honored as a patroness and goddess of hula. Seeing there's so many different facets and different schools of hula that have come from that. Um, and, and many different protocols of, of honoring the elements of nature, the deities of nature, there are 400,000 deities of nature that were acknowledged as part of being the, the one great creator that we, um, we acknowledge as, as E. Many Hawaiians in ancient times did not even speak his name. It's so sacred. But in our understanding, E or Eo is the name, um, which is part of our, our name of where we live, Hawaii, which is Hawaii. There's so many um, stylized steps and movements. And, and also, it served as a recordation of understandings and practices. For example, in Halava Valley, where the cultivation of kalo was, um, was highly systemized in the form of irrigation, uh, taro patches, or lo'i. The, there's a, a chant that was created that went through all of the different steps of, of preparing the land and bringing in the, the irrigated and irrigating the lands and planting practices of the, the, um, the kalo and harvesting process, the tools that were used. And these are all documented in ancient audio, as we would say, the oli was the, the ancient form of audio. The hula, the dance, was the ancient form of our present-day video. So those those um, practices of that that specific cultivation of a very important cultural crop, food crop, was documented and perpetuated through the the oli, the chant, and the hula that accompanied it. So, just the one example of of an example of, of the role that the the oli, the chant, and the, the hula played in our culture as a people. It's been to travel, to be able to see the world and to share um, our culture of Hawaii through, through music and hula. I'm so fortunate to be married to a very talented gentleman. He has a beautiful voice and a natural 
knack and inclination and proficiency for music. We get invited to do, uh, for example, um, about seven years ago, uh, we have a friend that's a, it's an amazing chef. And he was invited to do, create a series of dinners in um, Ingolstadt, Germany. And it, he, it, 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 he called it a taste of Hawaii, a culinary taste of Hawaii. He invited us to join him. And Dan and I were the cultural taste of Hawaii. And so when we gathered there, he was, um, as a, he's a renowned chef. And we were fortunate enough to be able to put on the chef's jackets and do, and do prep chef work in the kitchens. And when the guests arrived for the dinner, then we went out into um, the dining area and we're, uh, we traded our, our chef's jackets for, for aloha shirts and mu'umu'us and his ukulele. He put down the, 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 um, the chopping knife and um, took up his ukulele. And we were able to share through a talks format and through our music and hula, a part of the culture of Hawaii, a taste of Hawaii through hula. And we've done that all over the world, quite literally. It's been a wonderful, wonderful blessing, but because we're there for other purposes and he has his ukulele in hand and the song that comes up and I, I, I know the hula and I can accompany him. He makes me look so much better in a dance because he's such a beautiful singer, musician. So, you know, again, it's just really joyful. It's such a blessing. Even if you don't know the choreography for that song, if you know the the lyrics, it's easy to com- to choreograph on the spot as you hear the song as it's being performed. And so that just becomes where you get lost in the dance and the music. Uh, there's two forms: ancient form kahiko, which is very powerful. And I don't have as much discipline with that, but when I do, the, the little that I do is just, it makes me feel like I'm stepping back in time into ancient Hawaii. Doing a practice that was done anciently by our people. The other part of it too is the more modern dance. There's songs that are, one of our favorite composers, uh, Helen Deshay Beamer, composed songs in the language, it was in the form of poetry that is a more ancient form of the language and it's much more poetic it's a little difficult to transcribe because it's layered with kauna with the deeper meanings and symbolism she would visit a dear friend at their residence and on her way there she would note the elements of nature the 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 misty rain that came in and the rains that may comforted them as they were journeying to that place. And as she arrives there, she would describe the scent of the sea spray and the scent of the different blossoms that were growing on the land. And in her songs, she utilizes the names of the rain of that place, the name of the winds of that place and the names of the family members of that place and the name of that land. And to me, those are my favorite songs in hula to dance because it connects you with family. It acknowledges the elements of nature 
and the generations that embrace them in those elements of nature. So when I have an opportunity to dance those kind of songs, that's some of the most heartwarming for me. It's the most joyful because it's it's it, it makes me feel like I'm straddling a bit um, in in history as well as a foot in this modern times as I'm sharing it. It's just very embracing for me. Just yeah, love it. And of course, the melodies are just very, some of them can be very haunting and, and just heartwarming. One of the things I think of when it comes to attire is a loincloth, a malo, which is a strip of kappa, just wide enough to, um, to cover a gentleman's front, wrap it around like a loincloth, and again, circle around his waist to secure it, and the flaps to the front or back. It's reminiscent to me of maybe the Native American loincloths that they may have used. So I think of those similarities. One of the amazing things is that the cloth that was created, the kappa, was made from the walke, uh, from the bark of the walke. And it was, the way that it was processed here in Hawaii was a very highly stylized uh, form where, where they created these amazing um, beaters that had watermarks on them. To, to beat the bark, to create these thin layers that they would layer upon each other and the, and the different um, patterns on these, these cup of beaters would create this watermark on the last stage of beating. And they were so soft and pliable, very comfortable to wear. But also on um, the kappa, they would have designs that were created that would represent the family possibly in their professions, uh, like vana, uh, the, the sea urchin, the spines. It looks like a, um, a, a the sunburst. Uh, and the word for vana, um, the, the word for dawn is vana'au. It looks like that sea urchin. But it refers to um, coming out of the, the darkness of, of night into the, the light of day, coming out of the darkness of, of ignorance into the light of knowledge and understanding. And so things like that, you know, those, those kappa designs um, had meaning for the families and they would utilize those different kappa designs. And in modern day, you have an amazing young designer, Micah Kamahuali'i. His family legacy is in kappa and he decides, in fact, just as I've got one of his designs on me now. Designs are incorporated in textile. You know, there's so many connections with food, not necessarily in terms of hula specific, but more in understanding culturally. Um, Kal I mean, is a great example um, and how Papa and Wakea, sky, um, sky mother and father had, um, he, they had a child and um, the daughter and the father had a um, had a relationship with the daughter and the the, the child that was born of that was um, was malformed and they they stillborn they buried that that child Haloa Haloa Naka um, in the corner of their their home and from that spot 
grew the kalo plant. And um, when you look at the kalo, um, the different parts of it, the oha, uh, the, 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 um, the, the stem uh, is a root word for ohana, family. And different parts of it, but it's also one of the staples and represents nature. And the, um, they had another child, which was man. And so in our understanding, you have the spiritual realm where the creator, um, and you have the firstborn being nature and the, the second being man. And so there's an understanding of, of a word that we have, it's called lokahi, where it's, um, it's an it's an, it's an understanding and respect and of acknowledgement of of spirit, the great creator, nature, and your older sibling, and man, and how if you take care and respect the spirit, the great great creator, and nature, they will take care of you as man. And and it um, it's a very practical understanding of how a food um, item plays into our cultural understanding. But, you know, when you asked about specific foods, there were different foods that were used symbolically or avoided symbolically. Um, uh, kukui is a, is a candle nut tree, and the, the nut, the kernel from that is very, very oily, and it was used as a food item to flavor as a, as a condiment, a nutty flavor. But as a kernel, you could um, it would burn. And they would string a number of them on a midrib of a coconut and they would light the top and have it in a stone bowl and it would provide light. And as the top kernel burnt down, it would go to the next. And so that represented light and knowledge and enlightenment. But also in hula practices, say if you're studying it and you're um, practicing very, very um, intently for, say, a competition where you have to have your your um, energies and your thought and your focus so very strongly focused um, to, to learn the new chants, learn the new steps and learn the choreography. Um, you would be in a period of time of learning that or preparing for a kula competition. There would be certain foods that would be kapu. You would not be able to eat like he'e. He'e is octopus. But also in the translation of he'e, another word for it is to slip or slide, to slide away. So you would not be allowed as a student preparing for that competition to eat the he'e because you would not want the knowledge be slipping away from you. So that's an example of how in hula, they would utilize certain foods to help to strengthen and bolster their understanding and preparation or to avoid because of the, the deeper meaning or duality of a, another meaning that that particular food held in its translation. You know, also ceremonially, we had protocols when we did offerings. If, uh, say, a pu'ahiva, which is the black pig, was not available, you could substitute for another for a fish that was referred to as pu'akai, an ocean pig. And aholehole maleraava, and so you would find those along the shoreline or in ponds, man-made ponds, 
ancient ponds. And you could utilize that as a substitute for the offering for the protocols that you might have. So you know, different ceremonial foods or even seaweeds. If you're asking for forgiveness for something that you did or said in, um, in an action or you, even in the dance or if you were you in some way insulted or offended someone, you would utilize the limukala. Kala is a word that um, says, excuse me, forgive me for any wrongdoing that I've committed in, in my thoughts and my words and my actions. And so utilizing that um, the limu or the kala fish um, would also represent that request for forgiveness. And that was how they would utilize some of the um, foods in ceremony um, and protocols, both in hula or for other practices. What did happen is we were very fortunate living here in the islands. We have a lot of outdoor space. And uh, in the time that we were off, um, I'd find myself sometimes out along the shoreline at a place where the, the ancient fish ponds are along the, the shoreline. And there's there a little cottage that's tucked away there. And we would go to check on the cottage. But while we're there, um, we have music playing. And... It was, an, it was a great opportunity to just start, you know, you hear the music and you, you say, oh, I know that, you know, and you would just start, I would just start dancing. I would dance the choreography that I remembered for that song. And if I did not, it was an opportunity to create a new choreography just for that moment in time. And it didn't matter if I remembered the choreography or not. It was just being in the moment and the joy of the music and just dancing. And um, we, we really didn't go out to gatherings, but we were in different places. We were fortunate to have a, um, a place that we could go to. We spent a lot of time on the other side of the island, family cottage, the volcano area. Very highly forested, cool. We'd be working in the yard. Um, for hours, all day, but again, the music would be playing, and then you just you just pause. You say, "Oh," and you just start dancing. There would be times when we wake up in the morning, feel the cool breezes, just wafting through your hair and your 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 skin, and we would stand there and we would just break out into a um, an olia chant. And in that chant, you would be, you know, giving your 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 praises and thanks. What I said was. There's a, a welling up of joy and love as I hear the sound of the birds chirping in the trees. And as I feel this gentle breeze wafting through my hair and the misty rain as it lightly falls and the sun that breaks through that, I can feel the embrace of my ancestors for we know when 
we are in that place where we are surrounded by the mist is where our ancestors will gather and embrace us. And so you have all of these beautiful ho'ailona, these, these portents and elements of nature that greet you. First thing in the morning is you open the door and it's just, just as a, a moment of gratitude and respect of all of the elements of nature that um, nurture us. And that's what the pandemic did for us. So I'll speak very specifically to the, the discipline as we understand it today. Experience in hula was more of a, but more of a joyful endeavor. But in the discipline of learning hula, in ancient times, you would be, you, you would sometimes be dedicated very specifically to the dance, where that would be who you were literally married to you would be dedicating your, your life. And it, usually at the age of three, you were selected to and identified and selected as a student of hula. And you would spend a lifetime learning all of the nuances, the, the background, the, the chants, and the different facets of hula, which were physical in the dance, but also more deeply spiritual and the understanding of the symbolism of the dance. And you would go through a process of, of academia and learning the language and the cultural um, uh, tools, so to speak, or implements that you would utilize in the dance. Um, and throughout that process, it was you had a, a, a teacher, a kumun, on the island of Molokai, um, there are more colloquial ancient um, terms. Uh, olohe uh, was an ancient term for kahuna, but um, omomo also was another term that was used. Today we refer to them as kumu, but um, it was a deeper, more connected um, title um, that was that had a spat had a very strong facet of spirituality. So prayer, pule, was an important part of that. And you'd go through a process, and when you were deemed um, proficient in that discipline of hula, uh, you would go through a graduation, an uniki, uniki process. That would be the time when you would be able to gather your friends and family to present yourself and your discipline um, in, its, in the chant, and, uh, the, and the hula, and to um, to show you're introduced by your your kumu, your teacher, as a graduate, and you went through a process of different ceremonies. Um, I won't profess to be to be knowledgeable in the ceremonies that were involved, but they were quite involved when you speak about them in ancient times. Um, very equivalent to um, what you would go through a lifetime of learning to earn your PhD in Western terms. That's what it would be like in order to become a kumuhula in our understanding for today. And that, that, that does still continue to an extent, but not necessarily to the depth of spirituality and duality of the dance, but in terms of the discipline of 
earning your degree, so to speak, and graduating in that discipline. I never went through that, um, to that degree. I, I, I'm still the perpetual student. Here on Moloka'i, we used to attend a festival honoring the origins of hula here on Moloka'i called Moloka'i Kahula Pico. And it would be um, preceded by site visitations and lectures. But the very sacred experience that you were allowed to attend if you decided to get up one o'clock in the morning to, to end Moloka'i Ranch on the slopes of Mauna Loa as you entered onto the property make your way up to the hill and you see the different pu'u around you that represented Kapu'ula Kina'u who started, who taught the hula here in Moloka and all of her siblings in the pu'u, the hills surrounding Pu'unana and it, you see them, they have their names. They're situated around Pu'unana and you gather there in the dark of early morning, pre-dawn but you come in silence as you journey up to that mountaintop. You're out in the elements of nature. The moon and the stars are in the night sky above you, and darkness surrounds you, and the silence of the night is deafening. The different families or halal that come to share in this pre-dawn ceremony will be invited one by one as a group or family. They would stand and all you would be able to see are their silhouettes in the starlit sky. As they stand and they chant an introduction of where they are from, and asking permission to enter onto the hula mound and perform there and to hear their voices and the instruments piercing through the silence of the very, very early morning. It's what we call chicken skin moment. It's just witnessing something that feels very ancient takes you back to a time of, of Hawaii's ancient past and its celebration of the hula there in that, that very sacred place. I think that's the, one of the most chicken skin kind of experiences of being a part of a hula celebration. Yeah, you know, that brought to mind something a few years ago. We were in Honolulu and uh, we were at the services for Kenny Brown, who is a beloved uh, gentleman of Hawaii. And uh, we were on our way back from Honolulu. We had to get back by a certain time to do the Twilight at Kalahui program at um, Lani. And we couldn't get a flight back to Kona. So we had to fly to Hilo instead. While we were in flight, uh, the Dan had his ukulele in his lap and he it was a longer flight so he pulled it out and he started plucking on his strings and the stewardess came across came to him and says oh are you going to entertain us on the flight and he said 
you know, jokingly just said, sure. She said, oh, okay. So she, she got on the PA system and she announced that there was a, um, a gentleman on board that was going to be uh, performing for the uh, passengers on the flight and had him come up to the um, front of the plane with his ukulele to sing a song. And he did a couple of songs. And one of them was a song that Kenny Brown had written and Dan had put to music. And he did that. It spoke of the beauty of, of Mauna Lenny and the healing place that it was. And as he did that, I danced down the aisles of that flight. At the end of the flight, we um, quickly disembarked and didn't think anything more except that we, we were finally on our island and heading over to, to Twilight. Not too long after, my brother calls me. He says, Anna, I got a call, phone call from the flight attendant that you folks are on the flight with, that you and Danny did a song and a, a couple of songs and hula's on that flight. And I said, oh, yeah. I said, that was, that was nice. And he said, well, she shared something with me about one of the passengers that was on board that flight. Said that as the passengers were disembarking, there was one gentleman that was the last to disembark the flight. And as he approached the flight attendant, he reached out to her and said, when I boarded this flight, I boarded it with heavy heart because I am here to identify and and take my daughter who has been killed here on this island back home. But I was so despondent and so grieved that and she was she meant the world to me. She was all that I had of my family. And I had serious thoughts of ending my life here where her life had ended. But after being on this flight and experiencing the outpouring of aloha on this flight through music and hula that was shared on this flight, it has renewed my faith and hope in mankind. And I just wanted to let you know that. That was truly a chicken skin moment for us and how we understand that something that we love to do and share may sometimes have an, a, an impact beyond our understanding or expectation. To have that bolster someone's spirit where they were so despondent that it changed their, their perspective of life in a very um, critical way made us realize how healing the hula and the dance and the music of Hawaii can be very profound ways. So this is a song that my dad used to sing, whether he was in Washington, D.C. or here in the islands. And uh, we'd always describe Hawaii as, as a, a land of rainbows, a place where all the diversities of people of different colors and, and cultures and um, traditions and foods can gather today, uh, together and create a beautiful rainbow of people. And so although he would call this the rainbow song, it actually was written as 
the Hawaiian lullaby. And this is the song you would sing. Where I live, there are rainbows with life in the laughter of mornings and starry nights. Where I live, there with flowers full of color and birds fill the song. I can smile when it's raining and touch the warmth of the sun. I hear children laughing in this place that I love. Where I live, there are rainbows with life in the laughter of morning and starry. Aloha to all of you. Aloha. Oh, mahalo na po. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to get together with you folks and have this discussion um, about hula and to learn from each other and just humbled and grateful for this opportunity. Thank you folks so, so much.